Well, the reason that I'm so keen and uh, and happy to be able to connect with you was that uh, I uh, I had the the pleasure of of uh, interviewing uh, Lizzie Gottlieb about her film uh, Turn Every Page quite recently and in during our conversation she had mentioned to me that you Andy Hughes uh, had been interviewed by her but that it didn't make the film and I, and so first of all the topic was fascinating and lovely the fact that uh, that Bob Carl was uh, interested in the production of his books, very interested, and the love and attention and care that uh, you have given his books. Is that what you were talking about? Maybe you could just tell us uh, and, and allow me, sorry, <laughs> to introduce you as the Senior Vice President and Director of Production Design for Knopf Doubleday Publishing Group. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah, I just it, it was so funny because a friend of mine and I watched the film together and and I I didn't know this until after the fact. He focused in on this very point too. He was very interested in knowing what you <laughs> had to say. Yeah, well, you know, uh I've been here for uh, 43 years and one of the reasons I was attracted to this particular publisher was because of its a legacy of uh, quality books and in all aspects, not only obviously in the editorial selections, you know, that have occurred over the decades, Bob Gottlieb and prior to that, Alfred A. Knopf, but, you know, subsequently with Sonny Mehta, you know, who was uh, president and publisher for 30 years until 2019. And now, of course, we have a new uh, uh, president, uh, Maya Mutabi, uh, but uh, throughout you know, all my career, you know, the emphasis and, and my mentor, Ellen McNeely, who, uh, you know, trained me, uh, were all aspects of fine bookmaking. And the interesting thing for me in the last, you know, 40 years had been the significant and, and kind of uh, in the context of book manufacturing, uh, revolutionary changes that have occurred in the entire process. Uh, so clearly, you know, in the beginning, uh, when I started, everything was done linotype. So it was hot metal composition um, and all that that implies. Uh, all the craftsmanship, all the attention to the detail. We would produce long galleys at the initial typesetting phase. Of course, authors submitted type written on a typewriter manuscripts. And then they would be retyped uh, for the lot of type process. Uh, and then we would go into locked pages as a second step. And then finally into what was called uh, at the time repro. And that was a kind of a photographic paper in which after all the proofreading had been done, every single of those prior stages, you know, the repro would be sent to the offset printer for uh, be, to be photographed, literally on a giant camera. And then that negative would be used to image onto an offset printing plate, uh, the film of derived from that, that repro, which is the final text of the book. And then imposed uh, often by hand on what was called the golden rod. 
And at that time, you know, certainly when the power broker first came out, it was all sheet fed printing. So, you know, it was one side of the sheet at a time. And after each side was printed, then the sheet went to a folder and was folded into signatures. And then after the signatures were folded, they were fed into a gathering machine that then assembled them sequentially, signature one through however many signatures are in the book. Uh, in, in the power brokers, over 40 signatures. Then the book, of course, at that time, in, the, in those days, in the mid-70s still, all the signatures were then sewn together. So we had the Smythe sewing binding process and then cased in. And again, in those days, all the books had cloth cases, cloth-bound books. All those days are now over. <laughs> so we don't now, now do books in that same manner. So all the subsequent books except except for Caro's books, right? <laughs> well, to an extent, to an extent, yes. fact, uh, you know, uh, the power broker, you know, is yes. now for uh, well since seventy five. So you know that's hitting fifty years, and uh, the last two printings because of price considerations, quality considerations, I moved the the reprints, the last two reprints to to offshore, uh, where we could get the full cloth case, the Smythe sewn signatures, the beautiful half round spine, European half round. What does that exactly mean, uh, Andy? So, are you familiar with our Everyman's Library? I am, yes. All right, well, I also... Sonny was involved in that, wasn't he? In re, re, uh, yes, sorry, he relaunched in, in the early yeah. 90s, and we yes. have that. 700 titles in the backlist. Can you see this? Yes, I can. All right. So you see this spine? Yes, well, there's a nice curve to go, it. If you go to a bookstore and look at them, you'll see that, you know, the formation of the spine has a bit of a dome, a half round. And it also encourages the lay flatness of the book. Yes. Which I think is extraordinarily important for the readability, for the user friendliness of the experience of reading a printed book. With adhesive binding, which is now the commonplace mode in which all books in America are manufactured, it doesn't have that kind of characteristic. This is actually uh, happening most publishers globally where the manufacturing is done on a web press and then the adhesive binding causes what I refer to as mouse trapping. It makes the book very tight and very difficult to open and lay flat. In any case, it was very good opportunity in the umpteenth printing of the power broker, you know, which is a 1296 page book plus, you know, uh, 24 pages of inserts to restore that, especially in commemoration or in acknowledgement of Lizzie's great movie, those kind of artifact achievements of fine bookmaking. And so if you see a current edition of the hardcover in the marketplace, you'll see that compared to earlier previous editions over the last several decades, it's a very fine piece of bookmaking. So that's a kind of situation that, you know, feel great pleasure, <laughs> you know, in having maintained or restored or uh, revitalized, you know, some aspect of the you know, importance of that particular book. Now, were you able to keep, what? what's the price? Were you able to keep the price? No, of course not. No, no, the prices, you know, of all books, you know, are are going up. And especially when a book has been in print 
really 50 years because of the cost of materials, labor, et cetera, you know, the, the retail price has gone up. It's a supply demand situation. Now the paperback, on the other hand, I have a copy of that right here, still printed domestically. It's the same book with some modifications for its paperback format. But, you know, that I think is now real retailing for about $25. I'd have to double check that. But it's obviously a choice that uh, the book reader makes, you know, to have the hardcover or the paperback. How much does the uh, how much does the hardback go for now? The, the beautiful. Uh, I, I would have to go back and look in our system. So sure. Being okay. that we're on the internet right now, I can't do that quite quickly. Understood. Okay. Um, but I can get back to you on that. But what, I, what you're telling me though is you're telling me that it's worth it though, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yes. If you want, yes. you know, the the bona fides of of, of a fine, well made book, and a book as important as the Power Broker. I yes. The price. Wonderful. Uh, so, uh, you know, the other thing that's important to know about, you know, working with Bob because of his deep appreciation of the printed book, very concerted effort he'll make into the presentation of the page layout, the whole organization of the book, um, in through all stages of composition and then manufacturing and printing. He, you know, has, of course, over the span of all these decades uh, with his Lyndon Johnson volumes were obviously up to volume four, waiting for volume five whenever, you know, he's finished. And uh, of course, if you saw the movie, you understand his whole process, you know, prior to it ever coming into the publisher's office. But the technology of book composition has changed through several epics, you know, that, uh, started from, as I said, Linotype, went into computer mainframe. We made that transition, um, I think, on the second Johnson book, uh, Passage to Power, and then subsequently Desktop. So the latter several, two volumes, Master of the Senate, and before that, um, I, guess, I guess it was Passage to Power. There was the Path to Power, uh, and then Passage to Power, and then Master of the Senate. Uh, you know, went from all these transitional technologies for book composition, each of them bringing new challenges, not only in the utilization of fonts and the way fonts are rendered, you know, in each of these technologies, but, you know, just the integrity of, of the established format of his books through each successive technology to make sure that we were maintaining the look we achieved in the original Linotype. I mean, you could say Linotype was, you know, very, very, very beautiful due to the craftsmanship of the Linotype operators and yeah. their skills going back many, 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 many decades. The whole nature of that process, you know, produced a very, very beautiful type page. So, you know, to replicate that in subsequent composition technologies was quite a challenge. And, you know, Bob was very alert to it. Also, you know, once we once we finally gotten into uh, desktop publishing in the early '90s, you know, there have been you know many application software program changes. We started with Quark, uh, and then we ultimately moved into InDesign, <clears throat> which is an Adobe Creative Suite product and a page layout program. 
And although, you know, we've made some huge uh, changes in the manner of our proofreading processes, most of it prompted by the condition of remote work during the COVID periods, you know, we adopted here at Penguin Rainmast and Serlina Kanoff a different manner in which, you know, we we're kind of paper free. In other words, in the old days, of course, I described to you the long galleys we would get for hot metal composition. And those are all then inked, you know, uh, metal and then run on a piece of paper over them to capture the, 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 the type. Subsequently, of course, it's all laser printers um, or other kinds of delivery printer systems over these decades. But, you know, with the remote workflow, we wanted to liberate ourselves from paper. You know, we used to create in uh, mainframe computer composition days, uh, these pages, which we now call first pass, second pass, third pass, different proofreading stages. And they would um, accumulate <laughs> quite voluminously, lots and yes. lots of paper. So the mm -hmm. remote workflow forced us, you know, basically to examine an alternative method. And so what we use is the PDF Markov workflow. So we set in app in the application file in design, and then we distill that application file to a PDF, and the PDF simulates. It's virtually a photographic rendition of the typeset page out of InDesign so that that can be then transferred to the proofreaders. Uh, you know, oftentimes for these complex books, there's multiple proofreaders looking against the master set, obviously the manuscript, and then blind proofreading to check, you know, all sorts of other issues in the uh, uh, proofreading process. And they mark it up utilizing this, this ability in, in uh, Adobe PDF to make comments and to mark changes electronically. So we have a completely electronic workflow. But what we work very hard to do that in that context, we still maintain what was the standard, the aesthetic standard from the linotype days. You look confused. <laughs> well, what no, what I'm thinking is with the linotype and the and the sort of the physical proof, the galley, the proof, the the material that the proofreaders received. It's it's a I guess is it a question of quality? Like I'm thinking, hey, this is really well done. So maybe they're they're reading it better somehow. Um, and maybe this is just a. Uh, person speaking personally, I feel all kind of cloudy when I'm reading something on the screen. I just want it as a physical piece of paper that I can put my hand on and and write my annotations and marginalia, and it, it just feels more solid. Now that's just an an elder an, an older man maybe talking about my experience with words and reading and and paper it, do you think the quality of the actual exercise is as good as it was in the past i do i do yes. i mean i think you know it was it was you know definitely a learning curve and an acclimation on the part of 
our, our brilliant production editors and proofreaders and designers, you know, to familiarize themselves with this electronic workflow. But, you know, in an age in which we had to be concerned about, you know, excess paper consumption and the fact that we make books on paper, you know, where it can be eliminated, where it can provide other assets to the scrutiny that can be applied in the proofreading process to the Yes, concept. yes, yeah. It, 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 but it is a, it is a, a learned skill set, and we applaud, you know, the efforts and the achievements of our production editors and proofreaders yes. to be able to do what maybe yourself or myself or others would find onerous. Um, yes. Obviously, you know, we're in an age in which we have big monitors, and we have other software programs that are there to assist us in that process. But, you know, it took until because the discussion had ensued for uh, at least 10 years when we adopted a more electronic digital workflow that the COVID epidemic precipitated a jump in the lake to make it work, to make it happen, because we were all separated. There was no opportunity to hand off you know, uh, laser printed galleys from one person to the next. You know, we were scattered. So uh, I don't know if it would have happened if, if that remote workflow for two plus years ever uh, never occurred. Uh, yeah, I guess I'm focusing in on craftsmanship. The craftsmanship of the linotype operator, that's one thing. That's a, that's a, and it took years for them to develop that. But the other thing is proofreading. So proofreading, the quality is gonna is not gonna deteriorate. No, it is not. And again, you know, at our house, I can only speak for my one place of employment. You know, <laughs> we have extraordinarily production editors. You know, the way it's organized, you have obviously the editors, you know, who acquire the books, have the relationships with the agents and the authors. And then, you know, in the operational areas. I'm in production and oversee production and design, dealing with manufacturers and internal departments. But then we have uh, our close collaborators and colleagues are the production editors who work more directly with the authors and the proofreaders. And then, of course, with the designers in-house and with production. So we Mm -hmm. work very collaboratively. The high standards that exist here are something that everybody takes very, very seriously. There's yes. a lot of complaints in the world about, you know, the, the degradation in the quality of editing and proofreading. And I can tell you my experiences that doesn't exist here. We try damn hard to maintain standards in spite of lurching to grasp all the advantages technology has provided us. Well, I think, I think, Andy, that, I mean, Knopf is the standard. I mean, you are the standard. Well, we and try to have- be. Right. The question sort of came up in the in the film about the size of a book. How big can a book be? And they were well, talking. A book, a book could be uh, could be any size. However, right. there are certain standards, and I can very briefly give you a cursory review of why the books are the size they are. Yeah. Is a six and an eighth by nine and a quarter, or it's actually six and a quarter inches by nine and a quarter inches. Knopf has a tradition over its hundred years of having what we call the deckled edge, the rough front. Yeah, Some people love that. In these, in these days, 
uh, when people buy our books on Amazon, they think it's a big mistake and they write letters of complaint. However, it is our house style. So we have these days be a little bit more circumspect about the use of the rough front or the deckled edge, the rough front pages. Uh, it basically harked back to the methodology in which books were printed when they were printed sheet bed. And, you know, people used to have knives in which they would liberate pages, you know, going back into the 19th century. And in the folding process, prior to, you know, the very sophisticated slitters or cutters that exist now at Bendis, because most books are, you know, flat cut on all three sides. Yes. Yeah. So we, 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 we have an artifice of maintaining the rough front because everything is printed pretty much on a web press to retain that rough front aesthetic. Uh, love it or not love it. Some people do, some people don't. But in any case, uh, six and a quarter, nine and a quarter, uh, another traditional size, common size, and I'm talking about hardcovers, is five and a half by eight and a quarter. Now, the origin of those two traditional sizes, and, and when I identify those particular sizes, think iterations thereof. It could be six by nine, it could be five by eight, something like that. But it derived basically from early paper making processes. So they're machines that would output certain size paper. Uh, was of the dimensions of the paper making machine. So two standard sizes were, there are others, but two standard sizes, especially for cream offset paper that was used for these kind of books were 50 by 76 inches, and another one 45 by 68. When you fold a 50 and 76 sheet, you will get 32 page signatures at uh, six and a quarter by nine and a quarter. When you fold the 45 by 68, you'll get 32 page signatures at five and a half by eight and a quarter or five and five eighths by eight and a quarter with a rough front. So it's kind of a horse before the cart kind of thing. And yeah. so subsequently when web press technology uh, assumed preeminence in the 1970s, presses were configured to produce using rolls rather than sheets books that had signatures that were at those two dimensions, six yeah. by nine and five by eight. And, you know, you know that all books come in increments of 32 page signatures. That's a standard uh, or half a signature, 16 pages. Bob's power broker is actually a 40, 40, 32 page signatures and one 16 page signature. So it's 40 and a half signatures so it's divisible by 32 or 16. so you know basically the origin of those two sim sizes is predicated on an earlier uh, paper making technology that is sustained throughout all these decades books can be any size um, and they are i do a lot of graphic novels for pantheon and graphic novelists you know have very particular you know needs for the presentation of their material uh, we do more diminutive books. Uh, paperbacks, for instance, we publish vintage and anchor paperbacks. Uh, their trim size is five and three sixteenths by eight. And again, that's a standard. They're all pretty much that size. The other thing, you know, the technology has allowed us to do is prior to scanners and other kind of technical abilities, you know, we would literally shoot down a hardcover page by a camera shot that would reduce it 
to a percentage, say 92% of the original hardcover page. Now we do this all electronically. But the point is, is that we're repurposing the hardcover file for the paperback edition. But the other thing that we've achieved here at Knopf uh, and Penguin Random House is the integration of all the delivery systems of the content into the marketplace, be it a print hardcover book or a paperback or an ebook. So when we prepare our files using the markup language that's necessary for composition, we are preparing files that are going to be suitable for being transitioned with another software program at the conclusion of the entire proofreading process of the book to be converted to an OEB, an ebook file suitable for ebook presentation, which has its own prerequisites. It'll be interesting to note that, you know, Bob has chosen not to have his books issued as ebooks. He's I love that. <laughs> and, and not that he's against ebooks, but he's more, I think, pertinently concerned with the integrity of the presentation that has been achieved. In the Very book. good. Yes. So, okay. you know, also the reader in an ebook environment has the leverage to increase the type, reduce the type. It blows up, you know, the presentation of the content that has been very well considered. Is he resisting technology or is he saying, listen, if you want to read me, you read me in the way that I want to present my writing? Well, you can look at it that way, and that's true. But at the same time, Bob is completely you know, cognizant of the technology that we're utilizing to compose his books. We still get from him. Well, we haven't got a file from Bob in a couple of years now. So we'll see what's next. But as you know, we started- when are you going to get that file? Do you know well, something? Yeah, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, we don't talk about that. Uh, yes, I know. Uh, but what, what um, you know, typically we get now is a word file. We ask our authors to prevent, present to us a word file to identify its its components, its headers, its chapter openers, all the elements of that book as yeah. something a designer can assign an attribute to. Well, uh, uh, sorry, Andy, I was just going to say that's kind of fits in with uh, it right at the very beginning. You need to look at things like chapter headings and all of the other things that are going into a book to figure out, first of all, how long it is so you can figure out the unit cost, right? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, again, when we start out on a project, uh, you know, the manuscript, be it, say, a Word file, or if it's not presented to us as a Word file, we may need to rekey it to create a Word file and then mark up that Word file. The designer will then, you know, we start with a planning manuscript. The designer will come up with a design, you know, that's been approved by the editor, the author, and whoever else has a, a, a say in it. And predicated certainly on certain attributes that we want a book that's six and a quarter by nine and a quarter. These are going to be the elements of that book. And with their design created with the InDesign application, they'll create a cast off flowing in the word file into the, de- the design will uh, determine what the page count will be. So, you know, all that's happening very upfront. Once we have that cast off, then you know, my department, which, you know, responsible for scheduling and with composition processes and manufacturing, will also do uh, an estimate 
Um, yes. And again, that's a whole other, you know, very refined process to create P&Ls, et cetera, to determine the retail price of the book and make other kind of publishing decisions that, you know, will either uh, enhance the attributes of the book or minimize them to make it an affordable enterprise. So right. we'll get that cast off and with that page count and with that trim size, we'll then prepare estimates going to the vendors, the book manufacturers that still exist and come up with what's called the unit cost, the PPB, paper yeah. printing binding, and a plant cost. And a plant cost are the one-time costs incurred for typesetting, the preparation of inserts or the jacket, and, and other kind of, or translation if there is a translation. So all the one-time costs that you're not going to spend again and again when you reprint. Now we supply a plant at a PPB, and then based on that information, you know, our finance department is going to run uh, P&Ls. And so, you know, all that's happening in the background for every single title. And of course, as you know, we publish as lists. So we have a spring, a summer and a fall list. So they're uh, combined as, you know, it's the spring list, the fall list, et cetera. Uh, and each of these lists has books that are deemed appropriate be included on that particular list. So usually our bigger, more complex books, illustrative books would be published on the fall list. And again, it's the perception of the marketplace and when people are going to bookstores and when they're going to buy these books. And of course, obviously Christmas time is a very, very, the holiday season is a very important time, you know, for uh, the sale of, of a lot of our more uh, major titles. How do you determine who gets a cloth binding and who doesn't? Well, no one does anymore, really. Uh, you know, we made that transition back in the nineties. Okay. Uh, the factor. And other uh, degradations in the manufacturing process, you know, the ability, you know, to adequately foil stamp cloth covers. So we made a transition back then again, as a major cost saving effort, but also facing reality where we had uh, what we called a three-piece case. And so it had cloth on the spine and colored paper on the yeah. sides. We've ultimately transitioned to pretty much full paper case side. I uh, hate that. It they, makes can look me quite, <laughs> they can look quite beautiful. Sophistication, <laughs> the paper-making process of those materials that we use. Yes, yes. Uh, they have textures and other attributes. They're perfectly, I'm used to it. Uh, they're perfectly yes. This is not to say that there are books that will do don't, abroad. Don't you prefer cloth bindings to cardboard? Not anymore. Okay. <laughs> it's not cardboard. It's board with I know, I know. very refined, <laughs> specialized paper on top of it. A cloth okay. book we do do from time to time. For instance, our Every Man's Library are, are fully cloth bound. But, you know, there are other reasons in which, you know, I fight, you know, to maintain the integrity of the specification. We also have a ribbon marker or a title page. Uh, but those are books in the public domain. So there's not an author. That's true. Yeah. You know, the classics of global literature. And so they are books that, you know, we will prepare just like I described it, you know, computer typesetting, uh, but then manufacture it with the latest technology. And again, they're all common trim sizes. I mean, we have three trim sizes for Every Man's Library. We have the adult classics, the stories series, and the pocket poets. 
and those are library worthy, you know, for yeah. putting somebody's shelf. They're uh, durable. They're durable. They use acid-free paper uh, and, and all the other attributes for maintaining in perpetuity on one's library shelves. Okay. Did Bob insist on a particular typeface? Yeah, that, well, again, that's a long time ago. <laughs> and he wanted to stick with it. He, he wanted to stick with it, yeah. So, you know, every Knopf title has a colophon page, the back of the book. This particular colophon page, it was set, in, the power book was set in Times Roman, designed fonts. Give me a minute. Stanley Morrison, yes. Let me check the uh, Master of the Senate. And it was also in Times New Roman. Uh-huh. A computer typeset version of that font. So again, yes, there was a lot of concern and discussion about you know, the fidelity of the computer version of this font yes. with the original linotype font. But that's his font, yes. You know, you know what's interesting is that even if the choice of a font might affect the number of pages in the book, Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Well, the, the font, you know, it's point size and letting are clearly integral <laughs> to determine what a castrop is. The number of lines per page, the line on the page. So all those are factors that are carefully, carefully considered. And, and Bob is very concerned about them. So preeminently, it's readability that, you know, is a primary concern. You know, so it's no interference with some sort of elaborate or, or fanciful type. Of course, there are thousands and thousands of fonts, many, many, many beautiful fonts. But that's a very, very legible font. Yes. Okay. So we've looked at estimates. Uh, we've looked at uh, what about paper now? Is there a paper that, that he wanted to use? Absolutely. Yeah. So, again, you know, the paper industry has changed pretty dramatically in the last 50 years. But Knopf, you know, uh, against the trends in the industry at large, we still use what's called a free sheet. And that's a paper that, you know, has been processed and prepared, linear free and of the highest quality versus groundwood paper. Many books now are published with groundwood paper which right. is, is refined and, you know, will tend to uh, discolor after a period of time, you know, especially if it's supposed to sunlight. But the free sheet, you know, is a premium sheet and it costs such. And so it's a very difficult maneuver in the marketplace to maintain a price point when you want to use a quality paper. So going back 50 years, you know, the mill that we used was the Warren Mill up in Maine that subsequently have gone out of business. But, you know, we've switched to a mill in uh, Spring Grove, Pennsylvania. It used to be called the Glatfelter Mill. Of course, like so many other companies, including publishers, it's been subsumed into larger conglomerate investor organizations. And their paper, we used to call it Glat, Glatfelter, is now referred to as Pixel. And it's a brand name of their choosing. And, you know, paper comes, obviously, for one-color straight-text books. I'm not talking about illustrative books, which would require a different kind of substrate, a paper that has a coating, either a gloss-coated or a matte-coated. But we also want the cream cast to the paper. There used to be a lot more varieties of cream-tinted paper, but now it's pretty much limited. 
to just a couple of shades. But the point being that you don't want to print the book, especially as lengthy as the power broker on a stark white paper. The glare would be extraordinarily headachy. So instead, we use this cream paper. Most novels and most nonfiction books are printed on a cream cast paper for basically the ease in the eye and the pleasure of the reading experience of the contrast of the type to the paper substrate cast. So we use a cast that color paper. Now, of course, Bob's books are very many pages. So you want to choose a paper that's going to give you an appropriate bulk for the reading experience. Now, it, you know, 1296 pages for the bout broker, clearly you want to use a thinner paper or, you know, a, a less page count book you would use, likely a thicker paper. Paper comes in many, many characteristics. There's the weight of the paper, 45 yeah. pounds band, 55 band, 60 pound and up. Uh, in Europe, of course, it would be grams. And then uh, there's what's called the PPI, pages per inch. And again, that's the calendaring of the paper. So at each of those weights, 45 to 55 to, and above, you know, you can calendar the paper to be thinner, but its inherent uh, pulp content would be higher, the higher the poundage is so yes does that mean that it's more condensed yeah more condensed in the paper making process yes and that would contribute to also enhancing the opacity of the paper one of the things that you know i find extremely important is to get decent opacity so that there's not bleed through in the page right you don't want one of these sort of bible type uh, rice paper almost right exactly that's, yeah. that's one yeah. end yeah. that's an example uh, but that's usually like a 25 pound paper anyway, but, yeah. which we wouldn't be using. It's not appropriate for what we do. But so you want to get paper that has good opacity. I mean, yeah. American papers tend to have much better opacity than European papers. I don't know why, but that's the case. So, you know, although the page uh, of, of Bob's book is quite dense, you know, it's blocks of type. Type is backed up page front page to the verso page of it, uh, you want to make sure that, you know, you're not, you know, obviously uh, not lined up. So there's that see through in the letting and the lines, the space between the lines. But nevertheless, you know, if you have a chapter opening, you don't want to bleed through or if you have an illustrative page, you know, you don't want to have that bleed through as well. You know, paper quality is extraordinarily important. So you deal just with one company in uh, Pennsylvania, or do you spread no, no, it no, around? No, no, no. There, no, there are, there are, there are, well, again, there, there's been a diminution in the number of available yes. mills that make paper for books. You right. Know, again, over the COVID period and even before, there have been pretty significant changes in the paper industry because paper for books is quite a small part of their business. Wasn't there, sorry, been, isn't that a concern about uh, all the pulp going towards uh, Boxes that Amazon is putting their stuff in? Uh, well, that's, uh, exactly, that's exactly what I was just going to say. There's much, much more uh, lucrative business, you know, in packaging and corrugation. So, you know, there have been a fall of a lot of mills. Now, in our industry and in probably uh, for other industries to acquire paper products, there are merchants who represent mills. So we deal with many, many different merchants who represent many different mills, the number decreasing though it may be. Uh, we source paper 
globally, you know, from Scandinavia, but the American paper market, you know, uh, or ma- making is, is quite significant, nevertheless. What about uh, Canadian? Do you Canadian? I, North American. I include them in because okay. it's a it's a North American effort. yes market, uh, right? You know, we also have to be very concerned about the environment, so yes. we try to use FSC papers. You know, which is you know to guarantee that no old growth bars have been chopped down. You know, for the paper sourcing, the pulp uh, that you know it's managed forest you know, sources for, for the paper that we use. And, you know, at Penguin Random House, we have an extraordinary paper inventory department that manages the acquisition of the papers, delivery of the paper, all the needs that we have, because, you know, we're publishing many thousands of books a year at Penguin Random House. Yes, yes. Extraordinary. And it is a, it is global. Andy, so do the do there are there there are reps that come in that sort of represent a, a a bunch of different companies? Is that how it works? And they sort of show their stuff. Yeah, well, no one comes in anymore. When I started, you know, I had salesmen coming in from every aspect of the business, selling their wares. Yes, wonderful. Those days, those days are over. So you know, it it much more electronic relationships, uh, established contract relationships. Uh, bidding relationships so vendors are vetted and or those merchants and so we have you know a process of which you know we agree to use that particular merchant and their mills or not uh obviously a lot of it has to be um, based on pricing pricing has gone up hugely in the last couple of years you know we heard about supply side so, you know, the cost of paper is uh, going up astronomically. Yeah, and of course, uh, everyone expects a book to be no more than 30, 35 bucks. That, you have to be careful with that, too, haven't you? Absolutely. Yeah, there's a price point that, you know, people are willing to pay. Uh, you know, because why should they be? But, you know, the average reader is simply not going to be cognizant of all the effort, all the costs that have gone in, let alone the acquisition and the royalty and the fact that books are, you know, uh, if they don't sell, they can come back to us <laughs> as a return. So, yes. you know, yeah. uh, our adoption of all these technologies and, you know, our presence in New York City, all these factors are very significant escalating costs that, you know, we have to mitigate by being as careful and lean and adopting technologies that drive out costs that we used to pay in the past well i suppose it's just squeezing your profit margin is what it's doing that's right and shareholders demand a certain return that's right well we don't have shareholders at our company but we do have a corporate owner you know who does watch the bottom line very carefully right right we're talking about bertelsman correct yeah i mean i started Know, when when the company was owned by RCA, I don't yes. know if they even have a ghost of a existence at this point. But then subsequently, we were bought by Condé Nast, and then in the late nineties, we were acquired by Bertelsmann. I'm reading a biography. Did you read the biography of Condé Nast? I don't know. It came out about five or ten years ago. No, I, don't, I, I hadn't. No. It's got a great cover. It's uh, kind of a shiny uh, gold color, Art Deco. Ah. Yeah, no, when I started the compulsory reading or the handout, you know, by 
Donald Klopper, who ran the company at the time, was uh, at random by Bennett Service. Yes, that came in a flip case, yeah. Um, what about the number of books that you do sort of limited editions for? Do you do any of that? No, not so much these days. Uh, again, when I started, we published uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez and John Updike. And every single one of their titles had a limited slipcase edition. Yeah. And over the years, there have been a few that that was done for. But these days, what is more commonplace is uh, a signed edition. You know, the, the retailers, be it Amazon or Barnes & Noble or independent stores, will sell people who want a signed edition. But, you know, the at least in commercial publishing, of which, you know, I'm a part, you know, the high-end limited deluxe edition is a thing of the past. The only author we currently do it for currently is John Grisham. Each of his books, we come out with a very limited slipcase box set signed edition. Okay. What about uh, the the bindings then? Uh, do you have, a, do you have, again, it's all what, by... Uh going on tender, but it, who do you use to, to do your binding? Well, all the vendors that we use in North America are integrated printers and binders. They have, you know, their pre-press department to prepare the files for imaging the plate. Of course, we now make plates using CTP, computer to plate. So they take our files and image directly to the plate and the plate is mounted on the web press. And then, you know, those same facilities uh, will uh, have binding lines uh, in the same location. So it, it's, uh, you know, uh, integrated manufacturing process. Uh, again, in the old days, you know, when I started, you know, there were a lot of separate binders and printers. We would ship sheets, you know, to a bindery for them to bind up. But, you know, that's not practical any longer. Now, how about, uh, it's funny about dust jackets. You know, when you think about it, with the technology we've got now, we don't really need dust jackets, do we? No, and, you know, when the Internet and uh, online retailing came in, you know, one of the obviously good points that was made is that a book is rendered as a little thumbnail on the Internet. You know, there was a very especially here at Kanaf, uh, with the group of designers that we had. You may be familiar with the name Chip Kidd, for instance. There was a very uh, much a renaissance of uh, jacket design. And our component vendors, the people who make covers and jackets are sub completely separate manufacturers. They're very specialized because we have different laminates that are put on the jackets and covers. And then there's all sorts of special effects foil stamping, embossing, die cutting, you name it. And, you know, again, over the COVID period, because of obviously the condition of the workers at a lot of these plants, there were a lot of call outs, sick, et cetera. You know, we really uh, diminished the number of special effects that we put on and now become kind of, you know, the way of the world. So you'll see as of late, a lot less special effects except for big commercial type titles. But the, um, Trend now, we do a lot of cookbooks. You know, we were the house that published Julia Child. Yes. You know, yes. But we have now uh, adopted a very much broader, larger cookbook strategy, very beautiful high end cookbooks. And 
the trend now is to eliminate the jacket. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, especially if you're in the kitchen, you know. Yeah. And we have just what, you know, we call pre-printed cases. And, and they'll look like a jacket, except they won't be a jacket. They'll be printed directly on the hardcover book. Right. What about uh, print on demand? Well, you know, again, that's gone through many evolutions. Yeah. In the very beginning, there was what was called print on demand. And that was literally print one copy as needed. Uh, yeah. the files that were available. But that has evolved, and, you know, it's the whole issue of digital printing. Digital printing is perfectly acceptable in appearance, but, you know, it's mostly now done for the long tail of publishing. So we have a very large uh, digital print operation for our vintage and anchor titles and other comparable publishing of paperbacks. So that, you know, when to keep that book in print, when you no longer need the minimum quantity you need for printing offset, which is a thousand copies, you know, we could print a couple of hundred. And so, you know, digital print is in its adolescence, you know, to improve. You can't really easily do in a digital print environment a hardcover because they don't have the binding equipment at these facilities to do those add-ons, you know, to make a hardcover edition, but certainly for paperbacks. So, um, yeah, the, the digital print is with us, and it's very, very important part of our business. Do you own that? Does the company own that no, production? No. no. It's, uh, either there are independents, um, manufacturers that have digital printing units, and most printer companies that have integrated printing and binding also have digital equipment. I see. So that when it comes to that threshold moment in which you want to transition to a digital version, digitally printed version, they're able to do so. Okay. I'm just, I am winding down now, just just so that you're aware. Uh, I, prior to our discussion, I read a chapter from what happens in in book publishing? I don't know that book. <laughs> what yeah. was it written? Well, it <laughs> was like, it was published in 1967. I was going to say early 70s. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Things have changed since then. As they, they yes, they have. Yes, uh, this is uh, this is edited by Chandler B. Granis, but the chapter on book production and uh, manufacturing uh, is by. Frank Myrick, who, I'll just let you know, who was the director of research and development for the Spender Bindery. And I just want to, I would just want to read this out and get your, get your take if I could. Sure. Because so many talents, so many materials, so many processes are used in the production of the simplest book, it is essential that control be exerted from start to finish. Beginning with the production jacket, no detail should be left to guesswork, and the source and responsibility for each component must be spelled out. Colors must be cited. Complete details must be given on the composition, the paper, number of pages in each form, imposition, trim size, bulk, source and printer of illustrations, end sheets, cover, type of plates, total edition, 
number of copies to be completed, final trim size as well as untrimmed size, if untrimmed, what edges are to be left rough, (laughs) (laughs) If, if to be stained or guilt used i've got my cat that's getting in the way of my uh in my my, my light here sorry and i don't want to smack her do i <laughs> uh okay just to finish off here uh reinforcements tight hollow round or square backs whether the book is to be perfect bound sewn or wired linings for the backbone headbands or not each step is related to its predecessor and all have a sharp bearing on cost. Fractions of a cent per copy multiply quickly. Production staffs should be constantly searching for new and better methods and reevaluating the older ones. In particular, they should make it a habit to study and visit suppliers so as to familiarize themselves with their operations. To do so pays dividends in lowered costs, improved quality, and more saleable products. That's the way he ends this. And it's well, I completely so- agree 100%. As I told you before, you know, a production person's job is mired in minutia. It's detail after detail after detail. I, you know, because I've been around for a long time, have had the benefit of the opportunity to go to vendors on a regular basis. So I've been to many vendors all over the world. Yeah. These days, that just simply is not available to younger people on staff. We try to find those opportunities, but, you know, with the internet, the need to go on press, I went on many press approvals uh, over the decades, and you're basically signing off on how the printer is printing that particular sheet, mostly for four-color books. But, you know, with all the assets available to us, the kind of uh, contract proof quality, digital proofs, uh, soft proofing, the preparation of the files within an inch of their life for exactitude of reproduction to your intention. It's not necessary to go and meet your printer colleagues, you know, but the communication with them still has to be exacting. So everything yes. you read to me is very pertinent. It's just that it's done in a different way. Jerry Kelly, the, the great book designer, has told me that he thinks the, the standard of the actual sort of printing is is really good. It's fantastic. Yeah. I, I said to a colleague the other day that I wished I could revisit, you know, titles that I worked on in the 70s and the 80s utilizing today's technology because, you know, the things you were just you know, so frustrated by and limited to do now are just, you know, it's miraculous. And, you know, the only unfortunate aspect of this is that, you know, the craftsmanship and the manufacturing environment is not commensurate to that capability oftentimes. So What what does that mean? What that means is that you don't get the quality product that, you know, in the physical making that the preparation of the file for printing would allow. Printing could be done very well or could be done mediocrely. It depends on the attitude and the conditions of the company you're engaged with. And there has just been a decrease in that level of craftsmanship. 
there's been an increase in mechanization and maybe there's less of a human touch, there's less charm. Is that what you're getting at? No, no, it's not a charm issue. It, it's, it's, there's still quite a bit of human touch, but it's not human touch in the manner in which there's the same care or appreciation of the activity in which those people may be engaged. Uh, it's a kind of a churn it out, you know, sausage factory kind of environment sometimes that we have to contend with. So, yeah. That, that's very much a, a William uh, Morris uh, quote right there from you. Uh, well, current manufacturing capabilities are not as good as the old days, <laughs> I put it that way. Um, you know, because because of that element of uh, pride of craft, uh, pride of product. And while we can, you know, prepare a beautiful file and we can print a beautiful sheet, you know, I think lacking oftentimes is, you know, the aggregation of all the pieces into an artifact of great beauty. We achieve it from time to time. I have vendors that I love and that do a great job. Uh, I just did the Cormac McCarthy box set at a vendor that I think did a magnificent job. It was a struggle because it was a little bit bigger a project than, you know, maybe they were capable of handling, but they pulled through. But they created a book, you know, with all the assets and uh, craftsmanship that are very, very important and appealing to me. And I think, you know, ultimately the box set, you know, is it came out just splendidly. Um, so when you have those successes, it's very, very, very gratifying. But then on the other hand, there are a number of titles that in spite of all one's, you know, efforts, you know, just come up short because of that missing element of craft. Still, I want to just drill before we leave. I just want to drill down on that a little bit. You're saying that, you know, we're saying that printing is better than it's ever been or it's very good. But Potentially, it's not, yes. But it's not good. So what's... No, 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 no. I'm not, I, I know, I'm not saying it's not good. Print, uh, you know, I, um, <clears throat> printing can be fantastic like never before. And, and, could... and, and any of the vendors that I use achieve that level of excellence. Okay? Yes. There are other printers that we, we have to use and because of circumstances, because of, you know, their MO, uh, yeah. will not do as good a job. Okay. Yes. You know, yeah. So uh, not to put them down, or that, that that that's just the way of the world, and you know you just try to hope to have the opportunity to give to those vendors who do magnificent work uh, every job you possibly can, but that's not practical. But where there is a slippage, you know, in in the quality is predominantly the binding. When the transition was made to adhesive binding, uh, I think it was a real terrible loss. The readability yeah. of a book, the pleasure. Yeah of the engagement with the book where it lays flat. It's not mousetrapping. It's not too tight, uh, not falling into the gutter. Just, you know, the, you know, if, all I can say is look at it every man's title and compare <laughs> it to the middle title you see at, um, at a bookstore. And, you know, if you can't perceive a difference, then good for you. If you do, you'll see what I'm talking about. And, you know, I'm very happy, you know, to have the relationship I have with the manufacturer of the Everman series. I've kept it at one plant in Germany, and they do a magnificent job. It's costly, but I think it's it's something that we work to make happen, you know, by raising the retail price, which we have. Yeah. 
supposed yeah. to be not an expensive product, but it, it's become more expensive to maintain those standards of craftsmanship and quality. Who is that? What is that company? I want to go visit them and interview someone there. Okay. Uh, well, point of fact, they're a sister company of uh, Penguin Random House. They're owned by Bertelsmann. It's uh, called uh, GGP, and they're in Posnick, uh, Germany. And there's another Bertelsmann facility called Mohn Media, and they're in Gerdeslow, Germany. I just printed a major book of ours by Ken Burns there. But GGP is where I've kept all of the Everman's libraries for 30 years. Okay. And that's top of the line. That's like, that's wonderful. Well, for that kind of book, it is, yes. Okay. Yeah. My favorite printer, you know, for illustrated books is in China. Well, who are they? CNC Offset. Okay. That's another whole kind of conversation. The issue it is. Of, of uh, global manufacturing. Yes. Quality, price, and service. Very good. Uh, okay. Um, favorite book you've ever worked on, and then we'll close her down. <laughs> uh, oh my god I, I don't even know where to begin I mean I've I, I, I thousands of titles I know that's a stupid response uh, but you know I sentimental did. favorite then sentimental favorite uh, I think would be the uh, the Nabokov the original of Laura <laughs> that I did. That was a real challenge. I don't know if you're familiar with the book, but I've uh, heard the, I haven't read it. No. Yeah, yeah. What was it? Well, check it out. I'll check it and, out. Okay. You can see. You can see. But I also work on a lot of graphic novels. Chris Ware. I don't know if you're familiar with yes. his work. I love his work. I love working with Chris. I love working with Art Spiegelman. You know, we just we just finished uh, a book that I actually printed in India by Sebag Montefiore called The World. It's not quite in the world yet, but it will be soon. And, you know, that's a 1,300-page book. It's really quite extraordinary. One just straight text. Oh, my gosh. I, I, I don't even know how to characterize how many great books that I've worked on. I, it's true. It's not fair. Don't want to necessarily show any favorites, but, uh, but let me thank you for being so candid and, and, uh, forthright in your answers to, to me. It was, uh, it was a real pleasure to, to dig into, uh, what you do, uh, the specifics. And, uh, maybe you could just leave me with one final thought on Bob Caro. Well, I think, you know, Bob Caro has been someone who is, the author who loves the book. And so when one finds that type of author, you want to do everything you possibly can to keep him happy because he is a purveyor of ideas that are so extraordinary and important on power with the, you know, power broker. And of course the Lyndon Johnson books yes. that his message resonates. And, and if the book is the, mechanism for getting out that message to our society then to be part of that process is really really gratifying well thank you for being part of this process andy you're welcome i'll be speaking to andy hughes who's the senior vice president and director of production and design for knopf double day publishing group in new york thanks again 
you're quite welcome. Take care, Nigel. Yes, you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.